All right, we come this morning to um, to Acts chapter 12 as we just continue to work our way through the book of Acts. And uh, this is a, a great story uh, for us this morning in the book of Acts filled with um, tension, persecution, prayer, surprises, vindication. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story for us this morning. Uh, so you, if you can, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Uh, as you're turning there, just even think about how the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the church in Antioch. Uh, we've been looking at them the, the last two weeks from chapter 11, verse 19 and following, and we saw that Antioch was a great church. In fact, that was the title of my message a couple of weeks ago, Antioch, a great church. Why, why were they great? Okay, little little interaction here. Why, why was the church in Antioch great? Do you remember any of the, the points at all or... Kind of maybe read through the passage real quick and just kind of identify why the, the church was great. Not everyone need to speak all at once, but anyone, anyone remember that? Sorry, what? Had many witnesses, right? The, those were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution. They were speaking the word to no one except the Jews, and then on others... They're preaching the Lord Jesus. Many, many witnesses. Not just not just some big evangelistic campaign where you have gifted speakers up front, but you had lots of people, the hoi polloi, if you will, um, just speaking to other people about Christ. So what else? Generous. They were generous, right? We saw that last week with just the, the heart and the burden that they had for the, the people in Jerusalem who were going to have a famine in AD 45. And uh, this is what Agabus prophesied. And so everyone, verse 29, according to his own ability... Determined to send relief to uh, the brothers living in Judea. So Paul and Barnabas took it. What else? Many witnesses, generous. Sorry, what? Gifted teachers. Like who? Who are their names? Barnabas and Paul, right? Gifted leaders, for sure. Uh, Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem. And uh, he then was a, a great edifier and encourager. These are great le- leaders. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul was a great teacher that he had. Just all the theological understanding that he had was immense. Uh, any others? Just a, a few others I pointed out. Yeah, they, they mixed the Jew and Gentiles. Yeah, they just in terms of the... The whole dynamic of that, which was so difficult. Um, I mean, we, we think we've experienced difficult during these days of COVID. That's like exponentially way more difficult. Good. Anything else strike you? They were willing to be considered Jesus freaks. Yeah, willing to be considered Jesus freaks, as they were called Christians, Christ followers, right? The, the ones who were despised from the world for following this Jesus. And they followed Jesus, right? They followed the Christ. Um, just also even here, that they had help, right? They, they weren't independent of themselves. They had the church in Jerusalem come and help them initially with Barnabas. And then lastly, maybe fittingly, lastly, the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, last two weeks, my message has been entitled um, Antioch, a great church, Antioch, a giving church. This morning, my message entitled Jerusalem, uh, a praying church, because it, this this morning, right, our, our focus in chapter 12 goes from Antioch to Jerusalem. You can see the transition there in verse 30. 
about, and they, they did so, they gave this contribution, this relief, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul are headed back down to, or back up to Jerusalem with uh, the relief. And we're going to see just one interlude, just chapter 12 is Jerusalem, and then in chapter 13 we're going to be back at Antioch again. Uh, but we just see, have this chance, opportunity to see in chapter 12, and just as uh, Antioch, we saw all the great things around um, uh, around the church there that made it great. We're going to see Jerusalem, the one characteristic of the church in Jerusalem, that they were a praying church. And just as my hope the last couple of weeks has been to, to say that, hey, we have this church in Antioch and we so long to be like the church in Antioch, right? We long to be a great church, right? And we long to be a generous church and a giving church and to have people be speaking about Christ and being identified as, as uh, Jesus freaks and, and having strong leaders and good teachers. We, we long for that. We long for the hand of the Lord to be with us. And so likewise, I long for us to be a praying church. That's the lesson that comes from chapter 12. In fact, of all the lessons, all the things I'd like for us to be as a church, this is one of the things I would like the most, is that we'd be a praying church. Well, let's read verse 12, through chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell, He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went on to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. He said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. 
And now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And there you see at the end of verse 25 of the transition just right back into Antioch, which we will see next week in chapter 13, the, the, the start of the great mission, um, missionary journeys of Paul and the mission's emphasis throughout the book of Acts. It starts right there in chapter 13, 1 through 3. But we see this, this prayer meeting. We, we see them gathered together. We see this church in Jerusalem praying. And you say, why were they passionately praying? Well, it really comes the first five verses. I'm, I'm simply calling it this. is persecution. The persecution happened which caused the prayer. And I think that's often the case, is that when persecution comes, prayer will follow. Because persecution places such a hardship upon our lives that we can do nothing but pray. Well, let, let's look at the persecution. We read in verse 1, uh, about that time. That's about the time that Paul and Barnabas came, went up to Jerusalem with the, the financial gift. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, this is persecution. This is violent hands, right? When the king, the government, in this case, King Herod, uses power with evil intent upon his innocent people who had done nothing wrong. And particularly persecutions against godly folk being persecuted for being godly because people do not like that. Now, that's nothing new for God's people. It, it began with the very first family. You remember Adam and Eve, and after they're out of the, the garden, there was Cain and Abel, and, and, and they offered up sacrifices. Abel offered up his sacrifice by faith, is what Hebrews 11 says, and offering it up by faith, it was accepted by God, but Cain's was not accepted. And God was, was angry with Cain, and Cain then was angry with Abel and his godliness. And so Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel, because Abel was a godly man. And Cain hated that. And, and so likewise, you I mean, just you read the whole Old Testament from the first family right on down to the last family, Zechariah, who was killed in the temple. But you can you just read there, the righteous have always been hated by the wicked, whether it's Joseph, who was thrown in prison by his brothers, persecuted by, by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and even unjust things happening to him in the jail. Or Jeremiah, the righteous prophet who was merely telling the truth and he was thrown in a pit. Or Daniel was thrown in with the lions right, because he, he continued to pray to the Lord his God. I mean, throughout the whole Old Testament, there, there's lots of persecution. In the New Testament, even, even the start of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, we read a story of persecution. In the very first pages, we see persecution taking place. You remember when the wise men came from the east to worship this uh, king who had been born? This, this baby who was born king of the Jews. Right? They, they came to Jerusalem looking for this king. 
But they were then told that it was the king was in Jerusalem and, and Herod at that time. By the way, this Herod of Matthew chapter 2 is actually the grandfather of the Herod that we read here in, uh, in verse 1. But, but grandpa, if you will, at that time right, was jealous and he says, okay, well, you go and you worship this king and then come back and you tell me and I'll come and, and worship him. And, and then when the, the, the wise men were, were told by an angel to go by another route and don't tell King Herod, and King Herod was... Was uh, that was Herod the Great? By the way, this Herod was like shocked that that he'd been betrayed him, and there's his king maybe there, and so he ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be killed, up to two years of old. Now that is violence in the hand against these Jewish people who'd done nothing wrong. And then throughout the gospel accounts, we see persecution taking place. Uh, against Jesus particularly, who's pointing out the wrongs that's being done. Uh, and then we see persecution in the, in the book of Acts, particularly with the Acts of the Apostles. They say they were preaching, Acts 4, Acts 5, and Acts 7, then Stephen was killed. And we're going to see persecution continue on. In fact, so much so that Paul would say in the very last letter, 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like, like persecution is just a fact of what it means to follow Jesus and here's just one other instance of persecution. And, and in this time, we see verse 2 describing the persecution that came upon the church. There's a Herod laying violent hands on those who belong to the church. He killed, verse 2, James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, this is, this is big. This is really big because this is the first apostolic martyr of the church. Now, you might think, well, what about Stephen? Wasn't Stephen stoned? Wasn't he a martyr? Yes, he was, but he was not an apostle. This is one of the, the 12, if you will. Like Judas, Judas defected. I guess you have Matthias then. But you have one of the 12. James was one of the 12. One of those who spent most of the time, the earthly ministry, three years with Jesus. In fact, what makes it so big is that James was part of the inner circle. See, among the, among the 12 that Jesus had, he had three special disciples that, 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 that got more time with Jesus than the other 12 did. Peter and James and John. And there are several occasions in which uh, Jesus took them along for another experience. So when, they, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was transfigured Right, the, when, when, when the God with inside of him was, was exposing out and his, his flesh becoming white and he was shining up, it was Peter, James, and John who were with it to be able to see the glory of Jesus. And it was Peter and James and John who went in with him into that bedroom to raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And it was these three then who got to witness the power of Jesus firsthand, this dead child, seeing the child raise again. It was Peter and James and John who were alone with him when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he was with the twelve. And then he took the three just a little bit further on. And he said, okay, you stay here. And then Jesus went a little further on. Very picturesque of his, of his ministry. He got Jesus, and then he got the three, and then the twelve, and then the multitudes and the crowds. But it was, it was these three that were able to hear Jesus cry out in that Garden of Gethsemane. One man said this, these three men witnessed Jesus' greatest moments of glory, like in the Mount of Transfiguration, and his darkest trials in the garden. They were his closest friends. I've called them the, the inner circle, if you will. And one of them here, a decade into the life of the church, was killed with a sword. Probably means that he was beheaded, was James. Now, this really should have been no surprise to these disciples, 
And I say that because Jesus prophesied this very thing would take place. You remember the time when, when James and John approached Jesus and even Matthew's account includes the mother in this? They said, Jesus, we, we want you to do for us what we ask. And Jesus, being wise enough, didn't say, sure, I'll do anything you ask. Jesus said, well, tell me what you want. And they said, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. And you say, why would, why would James and John ask that? Because they knew they were part of the inner circle. They, they knew that they were part of the, the special disciples. And so like, like whenever a, a governor or a king or a president takes, takes rule and reign, who does the president fill with his cabinet? But his friends, his faithful followers, those who've been with him for a long time. And this is the inner circle of Jesus, right? Who's he going to sit at his right and left hand, most important in his kingdom? But, but Peter, James, and John. And James and John were, whatever, ploying against Peter. They wanted to be right and left. And, and then... Remember what Peter said? He said this. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said, we are able. He said this. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared. In other words, he says this, right? Can you drink this wrath? Can you drink the hardships? Can you take this baptism? Baptism just means immersed. Can you, can you be immersed in the troubles I'm going to be in? And they said, yes. He said, okay, well, you will. You'll drink the wrath. Right? You'll, you'll drink of that cup. You will be baptized. And for James, his baptism meant losing his head. For John, the baptism meant right, being exiled in years of, of, of exile on the island of Patmos, which he wrote Revelation. But, but here we have these two, right? The, the first to be martyred and the last apostle to die, James and John. It was hard for them. Now, exactly how it is that, that Herod worked this through the legal system to have James killed, I'm not exactly sure. For Jesus, it took a hasty trial in the night to get the whole Sanhedrin to condemn him to death up before before Pontius Pilate. So I'm not exactly sure. But however, with the prominence of the number of disciples following Jesus and the unrest that it's causing in the city and, and the Jews against the Christians and the Romans seeing this unrest and wanting to pacify them, I'm sure that, uh, that somehow something was, was done quickly and that Herod was able to, um, to kill James. Maybe that was just from divine fiat executive order. I'm not sure. But I do know that he received political points for killing James. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. See, governmental leaders are always taking polls of what the people want. They want to know what the, the people want so they can do that that might help them maintain their power. Right? If they always do against the people, then there's a divided people and then there's a threat to their power. And, and when... Uh, when Herod saw the Jews were happy when James was, was killed, that was good for him. And the, and the Jews, of course, hated the Christians. They, they viewed the Christians as heretics. They, they viewed the Christians as, as deserving of death. You remember Paul, before his conversion, was ravaging the house in, houses in Jerusalem, going door to door, looking to see if there are any followers of Jesus. When he fa- found them, right, he, he dragged them off to prison. And, and then there they sat to rot, or there they were punished or there they were flogged or perhaps even killed. Paul was trying to snuff out the church. That's what the Jews wanted. They, they wanted the believers to be eliminated. That's why killing James pleased the Jews. And with James down, another disciple in the inner circle was next, Peter. 
Herod arrested him and planned him to put to death as well. However, verse 3 ends with these words, this was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, if you remember, the days of unleavened bread is about a week before the Passover. It's the week when they would would purge their houses of, of all leaven. And they would only eat unleavened bread, and it would come then down to the Passover, the same time Jesus was killed, actually. And remember, then they said, oh, well, let's not kill him during the Passover, lest there be a, an insurrection of the people. But events were orchestrated such, right, divinely, that then he was killed on the Passover night. But it was a, as a sensitive time as during the Days of Unleavened Bread. That's a Jewish holiday and festival when the Jews from all over would come to celebrate. And that was not the time to kill somebody for political game. It was a time of joy for the people. It's not a time for which a king should be executing his prisoners. That time would come, but after the feast, after the people returned home, when things returned to normal. And so that day came, verse 4, when they'd seized him, they put him in prison, and delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And the church then responded the only way they could. So Peter's kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made by the church, to God by the church. That is our second point. We've seen persecution in 1 through 5 against James, and now it's coming against Peter. And now the next 15 verses we see prayer. Notice first off how this prayer is described. Do you see it there in verse 5? Help me. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer. This is stretching prayer. This is a sort of prayer that you pray not because you're asked to pray. This is the sort of prayer that you pray because you are compelled to pray and you can do no other. This is sort of prayer that comes out of desperation. When you see you're powerless in and of yourself to do anything, we have nowhere else to turn. You, you, you turn to God in prayer, and you turn to God in earnest prayer. In fact, this the same word, earnest prayer, is the same word used of Jesus in the garden. When He was awaiting His death, He was in such anguish of heart that He, he could do nothing but pray to his father, just, just pleading with him. Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what he was praying. And in Hebrews 5, verse 7, we, we read this prayer was with loud cries and tears, passionate, earnest prayer. And that's exactly how Luke describes it in Luke 22, verse 44. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so earnest was it that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's earnest prayer. Crying out before your death to plead that God, if it be his will, to let this cup pass, that you might not have to do this. But then he gave in to God and said, not my will, but yours be done. That's the the same word here that says earnest prayer was made made to God by the church. Can you hear these prayers? Okay. These prayers were not. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are so good and so kind to us. We thank you for your many blessings to us this day. You know if James, he was killed and Peter is in trouble. God be with them now. Help them, please. That's not the prayer. That's not earnest prayer. Here's earnest prayer. 
Oh God, we're in trouble. God, they've killed James. He's a pillar of the church. You know what's happening. God, they have Peter. We don't know what's going to happen. Please, oh God, help. Be our help. We can't fight them. We won't. We trust in you, oh God. Just be merciful, oh God. Deliver him. Do something, oh God. We are desperate. We're helpless. Herod is so against us. We can't do anything. We're just a small group. They're so powerful. We can't do anything. God, help. That's earnest prayer. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard earnest prayer before? Have you ever prayed earnest prayer before? Earnest prayer comes from persecution. It comes from dire situations in your life. The closest I've heard to earnest prayer has been in India and Nepal with my missionary travels. When I've been with pastors who are, are poor and they are, are needy and they're de- they don't have anything else. Darren was talking today in our prayer meeting, talking about how life is so different today than when he was in college. In college, he didn't have anything. Everything was in the back of his car. So easy, right? But that's how the people in India are. They don't have much. And they don't have much. They, they pray to God. All they have is each other. But they're needy. They are praying, as we pray today in our service, give us this day our daily bread, because their daily bread often doesn't come. I've heard pastors pray earnestly just for the, the people and for the nation. I mean, I'll compound that on top of Nepal and India, just about uh, uh, just how against um, the church the government is. And the people, right, being overall Hindu people, right? They, they want to get the church out of there. They, they, wanna, they hate the church. They do whatever they can. And so they're in this desperate situation that we, quite frankly, we're not in. But were we in that, would we to be in that situation? I do believe that earnest prayer would, would take place. Uh, I've seen that in, um, in the, the past. I've also seen that in churches, when I've been in churches. And just people praying passionately. Poor people not having anything. Needing God for everything. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are the poor. Because right? they don't have anything, right? They're going to look to the Lord. For everything, there's a blessing in that, right? It, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But if you're on the receiving end, there's a there's a, a way in which that creates in us, in you, this passion for prayer. And perhaps our prayers are not so earnest because we're not in dire straits. But I, I guarantee you, right? If one of us was was taken off by by the government of the Rockford police. First of all, we'd call Armin and talk to Armin to say, hey, what's up? But, but if they're taken off, right, for being a Christian or for saying Christian things and in jail and in prison, I think that we would be in, in an uproar and we would passionately, earnestly be praying before the Lord. There's earnest prayer. This church in Jerusalem was being persecuted not only from Herod, but also from the other Jews. And not only from that, we know that this famine is coming. There's going to be poverty as well. It makes sense that they were praying earnestly. I just think about ourselves at church, right? We, we, can, we can either wait for the trials that come upon us and pray earnestly or realize really what desperate states we are in anyway and pray to the Lord in earnest prayer. 
Well, the story continues in verse 6. We see the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over. It's time for Peter to be put to death. And verse 6 then describes the circumstances in prison. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. The picture we get here is of a, of a prison cell. Super secure. It's not just that Peter is in the cell alone. It's that that Peter is in the cell with guards on either side. He's chained to these soldiers. A soldier on his right and a soldier on his left. We got guards manning the door. Guards manning the gates. Peter's hardly a threat. He was not violent in any way. He wasn't a flight risk. Instead, what was Peter doing? What do you read there? He was... He was sleeping, right? Jack, do your best, best snore. I, I snore, so I know how to snore really well. That was Peter, right? Yeah, do your best snore, kids. Go ahead. It's kind of, you get it, you got it, it's got it like back in there, this, Yvonne knows I'm, I'm not, you've heard that many, many times. <laughs> Praise the Lord for CPAPs, all right? That's another story, right, right Andy? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And your mom, too, has got one. Yeah, those are wonderful. So uh, anyway, good job, good job. Well, Peter is a deep sleeper just like you, Trey. Peter is there sleeping. It's amazing, right? The church is outside praying, and Peter's inside sleeping. He's content in the Lord. Like normally, isn't it the opposite? Like Peter's the one who's about to die the next day. And and I don't know, death row inmates, whether they spend much time sleeping before that time which they're executed. My guess is there's not a lot of sleep taking place on death row before they're executed. But here's Peter, sleeping content in the Lord. And I just say, this is a great picture of how to be content in the Lord. How to pass all your anxieties on him, as Paul would later write. Um, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your requests be known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this is what it is. It's passing all of our comprehension. We have no idea how Peter's inside sleeping when those outside are praying. And I just know from my, my own heart. I mean, I, there are times when I have troubles in my life where it's difficult to sleep because my mind wakes up and it starts racing and it starts thinking about those anxieties. This is a great, great model for me as well. It just casts my anxieties upon the Lord and realize that, God, as, as you kept Peter sleeping and trusting, you can help me sleep. Then you sleep in the night and then you, you're better in the day. And I just say, if Peter can sleep in prison, so you Trusting in the Lord can sleep through your anxious troubles in your life. Just give it to God. God helps us in our sleep. Anyway, we read in verse 7 how his sleep was interrupted. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He stuck Peter on the side and, and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fall off his hands. Now, being awakened from a deep slumber and a sleep is never a pleasant experience, is it? Like, you're sleeping there, and the light pops on, and what happens to your eyes? You're like, whoa, <laughs> I know, turn it, turn it off. Yes, yes it's hard, right? Amen. I, I love that, that, amen, preaching, right? Here we come. 
you can stir me in that. But it's hard. Like, I love Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing to him. Right? Hey, how you doing? Like, so, so, so kids, right? Don't go into your parents' place and say, Mom and Dad, happy. How are you doing? Woohoo. It's a good morning. You don't do that, right? Gently wake people up. Otherwise, it'll come to you as a, as a curse. And in Peter's case, right, an angel appeared to him. This light shined on him, but that wasn't enough to awaken him. It, it took the nudge of the angel from side to side to say, Peter, wake up. You know what that's like? He's snoring. Peter, wake up, wake up. Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's kind of, and I think he was still in this fog. I, I know he was, was, was groggy because even later he didn't realize, verse 9, that it was, it was real, real. But because we're always, right, groggy when we awaken uh, uh, like that. But he said, okay, get up. But like Peter was chained. How in the world was he going to get up? But the chains fell off right at that very moment. And so he was able to get up and able to follow the counsel of the angel. And then verse 8, we read this. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, so the angel said, dress yourself. And he dressed himself. And these, these guards right, were the ones who continued to sleep. As Peter was awakened, pretty surreal moment, as, as I am sure, as he puts on his cloak and puts on his sandals and, and begins to, to follow him right out the door. And Peter, thinking it was a, a vision, right? He had experienced visions before. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when he was staying in the house of Joppa, it was about mealtime, he was hungry, he went up to the, the roof and uh, fell into a trance and saw a vision of something like a great sheet being let down from heaven, held by the four corners upon the earth, and all kind of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and sky uh, of the air. And there came a voice to him that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? And that was a vision that he had seen, and he kind of knew what that was. It was very surreal. And, and he thought that this was a dream about the whole angel waking him up as well. It wasn't a dream. He was being set free. And just by the way, this really happened, church. This really happened. This isn't some myth. This isn't some legend. This isn't some fanciful concoction. Luke is a historian, and he's writing, this really happened. Peter, as we see, then as he goes out, verse 10, they pass the first and Second guard, they, they came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened of its own accord, and, and they went out, went along one street, and then immediately the, the angel left him. So you imagine, right, they're, they're going out, and all these guards, for some reason, they were invisible to them, or they were sleeping, or, and, and, and even the entrance to the city gate, right, they're, they're right there, and as they walked in, they just opened up. Now, it's interesting for us, we see this happen all the time, Right? You go to Walmart, right, or you go to Kohl's, and, and just as you start walking up, what happens to the doors, guys? They, they just open up. Now, okay, you older folks, right, you remember, right, when you were young, that didn't happen so much, except if you went to the grocery store and you stepped on the pad, then it would open up. But now they got these motion detectors that would come and, and open the gates automatically, but that's new technology. That was not around back then. Like back then, it was it was nothing. You'd had to open the gate, but the gates opened by themselves. Never seen this before, because here's the point: it was miraculous. 
This was somehow the power of God moving that. I, I, I listened to R.C. Sproul as he preached this text this week, and he, he exhorted his congregation, I exhort you as well, anytime you walk into a grocery store or a department store or something and doors open automatically for you, a hotel, remember this story and remember the miraculous working of God. So, yes, a motion detector, you know it's not miraculous, but realize that God can do the miraculous Whenever you do that, that'd be a, a good reminder, I, I thought, that remind yourself that God can open prison doors. God can set captives free. Of course, that then is metaphorical of what he has done to us in Christ Jesus. Remember Charles Wesley in that great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? He said, uh, fast bound in sin and nature's night, right? Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And so as you walk through the, the gates or the doors, right, just, just remember that that's a, a picture of our redemption, that God automatically just opens a door, allowed us to, to go free as the light has come in, awoken us, and we then walk into life. That's a great parable illustration, if you will. But, but Peter is set free, and then he comes to realize that right, in, in verse... 11. He says this, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued him from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's like he came to himself, like he was, it was groggy. And at some point, right, he really awoke, like the angel wasn't there and he's standing out there, maybe the, the cool breeze hit him and maybe he's pinching himself to see if it's real and it's, it's really real and he realized where he is. And so I just ask you, where does any um, jailbird go? If someone escapes the jail, where do they go? Prayer they what? A prayer meeting, yeah. Well, they go to friends and family and that's where the prayer meeting is, right? It's the, the friends and family is where they go. Right? That's why if, if escaped prisoners go out, where are the police going to go? Friends and family is where they're going to be looking for the escaped prisoners. That's the only resource that they have. <clears throat> and he finds this prayer meeting. This prayer meeting is in the house of Mary. Verse 12. When he realized that it all was real and true, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. By the way, just he went to this place of <clears throat> this house of Mary. We're going to see Mary again. We're going to see John uh, again, um, particularly even you see at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this is the John, the same Mark here, John here. So you got, you got Mary, her house, John was, was right there. And we're going to see John's going to go off on the first missionary journey anyway, but this kind of by the way, <clears throat> but it's mentioned here, so I feel it's, it's important. He went to the house of Mary, <clears throat> excuse me, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, by the way, wrote the Gospel of Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. There they were. Now, this house probably was the, the same upper room where the early church prayed after the ascension of Jesus. You remember that in Acts chapter 1, where all the disciples were there, and they were gathered. <clears throat> Some women were there as well. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. The brothers of Jesus was there. And we read this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. So this, again, is the church in Jerusalem. What's the church in Jerusalem like? They're a praying church. 
They were there praying. The foundation of the church was upon prayer. All together, devoted to prayer. It's a good picture of the early prayer life of the early church. And we would be, well, as a church, do the same thing. To be devoted to prayer all together. So I just invite you again to our prayer meeting downstairs. We're not in the upper room. We're in the, we're in the lower room, downstairs, basement, 9 o'clock. Please come. Just know that our God can do great things. He can set prisoners free. So let's gather together and pray and see the Lord do wonderful things through us. Jerusalem was a praying church. May Rock Valley Bible Church be a praying church as well. Well, then here's this, this funny meeting. He comes to the, the door. The, he knew where they were gathered, right? This constant place in the upper room. And, and uh, he knocks on the door, right? Because the place was locked. It may be locked for security reasons. I'm not exactly sure. But when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Right? So here's, here's Rhoda, a child, servant girl. We don't know how old that was. Maybe 8, maybe 12, maybe 16. We, we don't even know. But, but there she was. She recognized Peter's voice. And in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying it was his angel, right? So, so picture the knock outside the door. And, and they're knocking. And, it, and it's like, who's there? It's Peter. Peter, it's you. And she runs and she says, Peter's here. Peter's here. Peter's here. And I say, no, you're crazy. No, Peter's here. You're crazy. No, no, why don't you come and just look? And there's back and forth. It's funny, right? That's an ironic twist. Here they were praying earnestly praying, God, deliver Peter. God, deliver Peter. We need his help. So everyone comes, hey, Peter's at the door. No, he's not. You're crazy. God, deliver Peter. We need Peter to be pregnant. She's really, no, Peter's here. He's not. He's in jail. We're praying for him, right? God, please deliver Peter. And then finally, well, okay, maybe, maybe they say it's his angel. In other words, right? Maybe something else is happening. But still, if there's an angel at the door, won't you think you'd, you'd go and you'd look? But merely the fact that they say it is an angel um, shows perhaps how what they were praying for. Maybe the early church wasn't praying for Peter's release. Maybe they were praying for Peter's perseverance through the trial. Maybe they were praying what Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says, that to the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Maybe they were praying, God, not, not, not deliver God. Maybe their prayer was this, God, we pray that you would keep Peter faithful. May he be faithful unto death and may he receive the crown of life. And then Rhoda comes and says, uh, oh, Peter's at the door. It's his angel because he's been faithful. He has maintained, right? There's some spiritual affirmation, but spirits don't knock, right? So there's something else going on here. But maybe that's where they were praying. Maybe they'd pray that he remained true to the Lord. And they knew, maybe they prayed that because they knew Peter's tendency to fail and deny the Lord as he did three times earlier. And just saying, God, don't let that happen to him again. But I just know how encouraging it to, is to me to see the early church seeing these great things take place in prayer and like unbelieving, like they're not believing it. Until finally, as Peter just continued knocking, right, they went in, opened, and were amazed. Well, Peter, it is you! And right, and hugs would have been all around. And maybe there's a great joy, but Peter said, shh. Verse 16, 
Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him, were amazed, but motioning them with his hand to be silent, right? Because there would have been spontaneous joy and rejoicing there. He motioned, he, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And, and then he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and uh, went to another place. You just imagine Peter recounting those details, right? That, that, uh, that the angel woke him up and, and the chains fell off. And I could stand and the, and the soldiers were still there sleeping. And we passed by these guards unnoticed. And, and then we went and the gate opened up by itself. And, and then the angel told me to tell these things to James and the brothers. Now, obviously, this isn't the James who was killed in verse 2. Killed by Herod. This is a different James. Okay, James was killed by Herod, was one of the 12 disciples. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is the one who didn't believe Jesus during his earthly ministry, John 7, verse 5. But this is the James who Jesus explicitly appeared to after he rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. And the significance of the angel telling Peter to tell James is that James is going to take a more leadership role in the church. Because Peter is now a fugitive. He's going to be on the run. Because they're going to be looking for him. And we're going to find out that he flees to Caesarea a little bit. But that's why he probably told this story quickly. Shh, they're going to be looking for me. And then he told them about this story real quick. And, and then he made sure to tell James and everybody else. And then he said he was gone. He, he is out of there because they're going to be looking for him. But we'll see in chapter 15 how James does take a prominent role at the Jerusalem Council. In fact, even he's the one with the last word, not Peter. Peter was the first of the disciples for sure. But because of this instance and him going away and then James picking up leadership in the church, you're going to see James taking a, a, a senior hand in that way, just a more authoritative voice. Anyway, verse 18, we see the, the fallout. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Now, no little disturbance is another way of saying there was a lot of concern and disturbance taking place. Like, what happened? We put this man in prison for you guys to guard, and you didn't guard him. What happened? And these soldiers were looking at each other and said, I don't know. I don't know. He was chained, and then the chains were off, and trying to explain all that's happening. Verse 19, and Herod searched for him and did not find him. That is, Herod sent out his soldiers, did not find him in the city because he was there at the prayer meeting, and then he had scooted and gone another place. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. This is the accountability of the Roman criminal system in those days. To fail in your, your guard duty meant that you should die. That's why the, the jailer in, in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, right, when there was an earthquake and, and the, the gates were no longer secure, he, he just assumed that the prisoners had escaped and he was ready to kill himself. But Paul, from in the jail, said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Because the, the jailer knew that like, if the prisoners escaped, they would kill him. And so he was ready to kill himself. And instead, Paul says, we're here. And, and then from that and from their hymns, whatever, some discussion, at least, what must I do to be saved? You, you guys are different. What must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and all your household. Right? Believe in Christ. And even for us today, those messages ring true, right? We need to believe in Christ to be saved. And there is the, the accountability of the guards, <clears throat> which, by the way, is what makes the resurrection of Jesus so remarkable. Those guarding the tomb, guarding a dead man, weren't even able to keep him in the tomb. 
And the fact those soldiers weren't put to death but were bribed off demonstrates that the Jews understood what was going on and they, they tried to cover their tracks rather than if these soldiers would have been killed. It was, well, they didn't guard the, the tomb. This dead man got out and it would have been awful. And so there's a similar perspective there. But soldiers don't guard those prisoners. They were put to death. And then we see <clears throat> Peter going down from Judea to Caesarea, which he was near Caesarea when he was in Joppa uh, during his time there when Cornelius' men came and visited him. Um, and then he went down, down there as well. Maybe he went to the home of Cornelius, who was in Caesarea. We don't know. Um, maybe he, Philip joined up with Philip. We, we don't know, but he was in Caesarea, outside of the jurisdiction of Jerusalem. It's just important for him as a, as a jailbird to flee. <clears throat> well, let's move on to our third point this morning. I'm simply calling it pride. Pride. Now, Herod was angry with the people, verse 20. The people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came down with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. Now, here's, here's genuine politics at work. We, we don't know fully what's going on. It's difficult to understand what's going on. One commentator said this, the, the situation Luke describes in these verses is not entirely clear. Right? just means this is, this is like all we have. Josephus didn't mention anything about this conflict and this trouble, but somehow Herod was angry with Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were like uh, seaport cities to the, the northwest uh, of Jerusalem, up, up there, Judea. And, and I would guess that their, their anger came about because all these imp, maybe import taxes, they weren't getting enough or weren't supplying enough or, or somehow, we, we don't know, but probably lack of, of income. But then, then there was food on the other side that they wanted food from Judea. And so there was like this tension and so there was peace trying to be made. And so there was a, a political visit and um, that's what we see. This political visit of some type. So whatever's going on, we see peace being made. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. You know what that's called? It's called flattery. Where a political figure then is, is they speak like good things to him, and the political leader just loves good things speaking when people say really good things about him. But we don't, know, we don't know anything about a political leader who really wants good things said about him. But they stroked his ego, calling him God. That didn't go so well. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, the picture you get here is of Herod, right? pontificating forth and being an orator and these people saying, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man and being all proud. And then these worms come up and he just keels over right there on the, on the rostrum. Well, not quite. Uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us more of the details, which are entirely consistent here. Um, Josephus says this. Remember Josephus last time. He, he, uh, he's a Jewish historian and he told about the famine in the days of Claudius. And so likewise, he told about the time when King Herod went to speak with Tyre and Sidon. And, uh, and Josephus said this, The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flatterious impious. But shortly thereafter, he felt the stab of pain in his heart. And he was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere 
and at once was intense from the start. So what Josephus says is that this man, Herod, was giving his speech. In the middle of his speech, he got, oh, he, he had to stop his speech maybe earlier. He was in, in clear pain in his stomach. And, and they said then, they hastened, therefore, to convey him to the palace. And the, the word flashed about to everyone that he was on the verge of death. And he was exhausted after five straight days by the pain in the abdomen. He departed this life, the 54th year of his life and on the seventh of his reign. So we can probably surmise that, but you, you, you synchronize those accounts, there's nothing inconsistent with the fact that he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. But he was eaten by worms over the process of several days down from the rostrum and then eaten probably intestinal roundworms. Josephus tells us, by the way, when this took place during the reign of Claudius in A.D. 44. Um, during this, this annual celebration, these games that they had, uh, every five years, kind of like the Olympic Games, they had the, this festival they had in the fall um, in A.D. 44. Um, means that probably three or four months after the death of James, three or four months, because remember, that was during the time of the Passover, which would be spring, right, which would be March, and we're now we're talking August. So three, four, five months somehow in, in, in that time is when this did. And, and, and I think one of the questions you've got to ask, right, when, when there's a passage in the Bible, you have to say, why is this here? Like, like, if this wasn't here, like, you always have to ask yourself, like, if verse 20 through 23 wasn't here, what would we be missing? It's put in here for a reason, and we need to say, okay, if it wasn't there, what, what, what would we be missing? And I think we'd be missing this whole idea of pride. I think we'd be missing the whole idea of vengeance. Is it the idea is that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay? This is a chance for Luke to say in the history of the church, yes, this man that was persecuting the church, God took care of him. You don't need much to worry about your enemies because God will take care of them. He says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. That's why the church, right, succeeds with, with deeds of love and mercy, not with swords, not with spears, not with hooks, not with guns, not with military might, not with coalitions, not with elections. We succeed by prayer. We succeed by the Lord, right? We fight with prayer. You know who God fights with? God fights with worms. He fights our cause with worms. We don't need to be vengeful that, that God indeed will uproot the wicked from the land of the living. I read this week in Psalm 52 about David against Doeg the Edomite, who was a, a traitor and he was a snitch, and he revealed to Saul that, that David had been there and had caused the death of others. And, and David, speaking against him, said, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. You love evil more than good. And then here's David's promise to Doeg the Edomite. He says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And that's exactly what took place here with, uh, with Herod, that he was uprooted from the land of the living. And so we can, in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these persecutions, we can really trust that God is going to be the one to pour out his vengeance upon our enemies and upon his enemies. And as of coming to mind right now, one last point, verse 24, after I prepared my notes, verse 24, I simply call it progress. The word of the Lord increased and multiplied. This is one of those progress reports for the book of Acts. I've talked to you about that before. 
um, just how you have uh, different times in which it says the word of the Lord is increasing. And, and here's the encouragement for us. The word of God increased and multiplied. Right? The, the God's word not only increased addition, right? In, God's word increased and multiplied. It was, it was going exponential growth, what the word of God does. So just know that persecution is never going to stop God's word. As we just pray and we just trust the Lord to take care of things, His word will continue to progress and prevail. And we're going to see that especially as we go on to Acts chapter 13 and following with, with Paul and Barnabas as they return from Jerusalem, completing their service, bringing with them John, who's called Mark. They're all, they're all set, right, for this, for this progress of the gospel, which is going to go forth in chapter 13. So let's pray together. Father, I would pray for us that you would, um, God, encourage us to be a, a praying church. I pray that we would see our desperation, that we who are lost and dead in our sins, God, been made alive in Christ Jesus, and that we owe everything to you. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. God, I remember a, a quote that says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. God, and how prayer must be our, our number one priority, and we see even here just the power of prayer to overcome a, a persecutor of the church. And the power of prayer then to make the, the progress of the gospel go forth. And in that, O oh Lord, we do rejoice. I pray you'd teach us from Acts 12 this great story of the deliverance of Peter. May we realize that you can do the miraculous. God, you can do what we don't expect. You can even answer prayers in ways perhaps that we aren't even praying. Father, all for the glory of your Son, for the, the progress of your gospel. And in that, we rejoice. I pray you'd impact us with these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.